So the question really stands, do these people of European descent who say they follow Jesus, brown, colonized, serially enslaved Jesus, do they really love God? Because if they really love God, then they will lay down their arms against the image of God. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, spiritual formation, how we got here, and how we move forward post-evangelicalism. Nothing is off-limits in our conversations with scholars, seekers, activists, writers, in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. We are your hosts, Kelly and Gary Allen, and welcome to Holy Heretics. Welcome back to season two of Holy Heretics, and today we're jumping straight into the conversation because many of us began our deconstruction journey the day we realized just how complicit evangelicalism is in white supremacy, both historically and currently. The same people, it seems, who championed segregation in the 60s are now fighting for a white version of Christian nationalism at least here in America, but this isn't just uh, a uniquely American problem. I know we have listeners from all over the world, and no doubt in your own global context, you've seen the ramp up of militant and racially motivated nationalism, most prominently displayed several years ago through the UK in Brexit and in France's Le Grand Replacement, and of course here in the States through Trump's Make America White Again. And sadly, white evangelicals seem to be at the center of of most of these conversations. I think the most troubling part of all of this, especially when we're talking about race, is if, like me, you came from European descent, our ancestors are the ones who played a part in creating this entire worship of whiteness through colonization and imperialism. And what I mean by whiteness is uh, a white racialized identity that refers to the way of white people and our customs and our culture and beliefs as the standard by which all other groups are compared. So whiteness is at the center and everything else is at the at the periphery. And this notion of whiteness is also at the core of our understanding of race in America. Whiteness and the normalization of white racial identity through all of our history have created a culture where non-white persons are seen as inferior or abnormal. And this was written into our very laws as, as a nation. So the question is, how do we disentangle ourselves from that story from those laws, from those, from even that worldview? How do we untangle ourselves from the motivating factors to dominate and then use Christianity as a means through which we absolve ourselves of our national sins? So to help us with all of that, we are honored today to have Lisa Sharon Harper join us. And from Ferguson to New York, from Germany and South Africa to Australia and Brazil, Ms. Harper is doing the real work of organizing and mobilizing communities, churches, and organizations to create a more just and equitable world. She is a prolific speaker, writer, and activist, and is the author of several books, including Evangelical Does Not Equal Republican or Democrat, and the critically acclaimed The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. 
a columnist at Sojourners Magazine and an Auburn Theological Seminary senior fellow, Ms. Harper has appeared on TV One, Fox News Online, NPR, and Al Jazeera America, and her most recent book, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It, is out in February. So Lisa, welcome to the show. We are delighted to have you. I am looking forward to talking with you guys as well. It's an honor to be with you. Thanks, Gary and Kelly. Thank you. I can't wait to talk about your book. Uh, so I'm going to crack in there. Uh, mm. You discuss your ancestral heritage and the ancestral spiritual guides that you have tapped into to guide you through the troubled waters of our world. Specifically, you introduce your readers to Fortune, your seventh great-grandmother. Can you share a bit of Fortune's story and how her story mirrors millions of other stories? Yes, Fortune was a firstborn um, uh, ancestor in my mom's line to be born on American soil. Of course, it wasn't America then, but you get it, mm -hmm. on this soil. And she was the daughter of Sambo Gum, um, as in Sambo means second son, actually. Hmm. It's a Senegalese wolf name. Um, and he was likely brought here um, well, not likely, he was brought here in 1686. And Maudlin McGee, Maudlin McGee was an Ulster Scott indentured servant married to George McGee, but apparently she fell in love, you know, they met, she fell in love with Sambo. They had a daughter named Fortune, um, that they named Fortune. And mm -hmm. the thing is, is that the very first race laws in America were, were, were designed to deal with the issue of mixed race children coming from mixed race unions. Um, because the, the planter class who were the House of Burgess in, in Virginia and the legislature in Maryland, they just could not deal um, with, with in, in Maryland, they couldn't deal with the fact that white women were marrying enslaved black men and having <laughs> children by these men. So they, they, the very first race law in Maryland came two years after Virginia. Um, and it said that any white woman who married a black man um, who was enslaved should be then enslaved by his master until his death. Wow. Um, and and her children would then be enslaved in perpetuity. So over the years, um, the the farm the planters who um, realized, wow, this law benefits us, began to force their Irish and Scottish indentured servant women to marry and um, uh, and have children with um, enslaved black men. And and so you know the legislature looked up about a couple of days like a decade later and said oh we didn't expect to do that uh you know we need to change this so basically over the next 50 years um there are several iterations of that law over the years um over about 50 years the race laws transformed till they got to the point where fortune was brought before the the courts in the early 1700s and leveled with the penalty for being a race a mixed race child um, with having to be indentured for seven, uh, sorry, for 31 years because her father was black. Hmm. And, but she was not enslaved because her mother was white. Uh, um, and sense. over the years, you see what I'm saying? Over right. the years, um, then that transformed and and they, they basically kept that system in place until uh, you just get this, this burgeoning slaveocracy in Maryland as technology builds, um, you're able to bring more and more African people onto the shores of Maryland throughout the early, late 1600s into the early 
1700s until finally, by the time you get to um, the late 1700s and the, and the Revolutionary War, Black people almost outnumber. In fact, mm. I think they do outnumber people of European descent. And so when that happens, the race laws clamp down and there's almost, there's like a phasing out of indenture and it's all... Mm. It's all slavery. So what, who does that benefit? I just learned to ask the question, who does this benefit? Mm-hmm. At every single juncture, these laws benefited white men, hmm. not white women, white men. And nobody else benefited from them. There was even supposed to be equal penalty for white men, according to the law, equal penalty for, you know, um, uh, sex outside of marriage, you know, and um, not just sex outside. Like if you if you had, had committed adultery and had a child, the the man should be indul- in, indentured, but that was rarely, if ever, upheld. Wow. So white men um, escaped uh, accountability, even if they if it was illegal, they never had to pay the penalty. I mean, some mm. things don't don't change, right? They don't <laughs> change. This is the 1600s, y'all, right. right? Yeah. So this is where we see the thread. Hmm. So I um, worked on a PhD in colonial American studies, and from and that was several years ago. But I do remember the first slave ships arriving in 1619, and then from there, of course, the human bondage system began to flourish in what is now America, and and. It seems to be different. Uh, slavery in America was always tied to race. It was always tied to skin color. So can can you share um, a little bit more about um, what, what we mean by systemic racial injustice? Because even today, uh, I, I still have good white Christian friends who don't believe in systemic injustice. They, they can't seem to get past the fact that um, we actually do have systems and laws and structures that are embedded in the DNA of American public life that are racially unjust. And and this isn't just an individual thing, right? It's like, well, I'm not racist, so racism doesn't exist. Like, no, 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 sweetie. We we have a history of of living this way. Can you can you help us unpack that? Just um, not only for our own language, but but for those of us in our lives who we really want them to see, like, look, this isn't just the good old land of of Jesus here. I mean, we we go all the way back to this this original sin, as I said earlier, and and then what that means today. Well, I think that one of the ways that you see this the most is is in those original laws. Um, you know, when they when they discovered that planters were now forcing their indentured servants, um, indentured uh, Irish and Scottish um, indentured women to to marry enslaved black women and have children by them, they realized, ooh, we, we you know we can't we we didn't mean for that to happen, right? So <laughs> one of the ways they changed the law was to say no longer will the planters have the ability to make the decision about who's going to be enslaved and who's going to be indentured. Mm-hmm. Now that decision will go into the hands of the church. Hmm. So for the for the rest of the colonial period in Maryland and then throughout throughout the colonies the southern colonies especially the church held the keys to indenture and enslavement they were the ones who who basically they became the auctioning block of that era the church so uh that you know, we were we were in the middle of it at the very beginning. You can even go back to the even the Pequot massacre, right? 
There are good Puritan men who surrounded a native village and set it ablaze. It was mostly women and children, if I remember. Mm -hmm. And then any of the women and children who escaped, they massacred on sight. So all, all all in Jesus' name. Right. And then they set up these things called prayer towns. And the the prayer towns um, basically were trying to Christianize um, the the Indians and um, and would not let them leave until they until they said that they were converted. And I mean, it just it was horrific. It was just Mm. horrific. Mm. So when I when I look at the scripture, I look at the first page of the whole Bible, Genesis one. When all humanity is made in the image of God. And I look at that moment, right? The moment when Jonathan Edwards decided that, that a massacre would be the way to go and convinced his people to go that direction and killed women, men, and children. Um, what he did not recognize was the image of God mm-hmm. in the other. What he did not honor was the image of God in the other, and instead decided to take it upon himself to be God, right. to actually legislate the day of those people's deaths. That's mm. something only God should be able to do. Mm. And the same is true. The same is true with regard to slaveocracy and the, the first race laws that created racial hierarchy on American soil. When those Virginia and Maryland legislators um, got together and said, this is how we're going to solve our problem of mixed race children coming in Virginia, coming from the rapes of, um, of our um, English, British citizen, white um, landowners uh, raping their, uh, their enslaved women. Hmm. We're going to change how citizenship is determined. No longer will it be through the line of the father as it is according to English law. Now we're going to make it through the line of the mother because, and that's the law of partis, right? Going back to Roman law, because if you put it through the line of the mother, well, then people will be enslaved in perpetuity because if the mother is is enslaved, then Mm, the child shall be enslaved Mm -hmm. and everyone going back and back and back. And so they had choices that they could have made in all those times, but the choice that they made was one of domination. Right. And I think it's because um, the the scripture has been interpreted through a hermeneutic of domination, a hermeneutic of empire since mm-hmm. Constantine. And so um, it, it, that's how you get Calvin's Switzerland mm. financing the transatlantic slave trade. Wow. <laughs> it's so interesting. I, I want to go back to your book for a second. Um, I've mm-hmm. uh, many more questions. Mm -hmm. Um, But what was your emotional response as you were unweaving the story of your heritage? And then what Mm -hmm. was it like presenting that to the world? I think that's a lot of people don't take the time to, you said on your post on Instagram, four years of research. Mm -hmm. Can you, can you walk us through the, the particular emotional response that you had? Boy, that's really, that's, that it's really, thank you for asking that because it's something that can get lost, right? Mm-hmm. We just, we just want to know the facts, but we don't really let them in. Right. And when I sat in them, I mean, I literally wept several times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I wasn't even writing the book, I was just doing the research way back when I first got my first ancestry.com, you know, DNA right. back, <laughs> right? Like, I literally wept out loud because it was the first time in our families, 
history on this soil, which goes back 300 years, right? It was the first time that we knew where we were from. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Wow. It was the first time we could actually put our, a hand on the map other than the United States hmm. and the and the transatlantic. Wow. Where, and where, where was that? Well, mostly from Nigeria. Okay. And But then also um, going, in, we have some in Benin, we have some in Ghana, we have some in Senegal and Mali. So I think the two top ones in my Ancestry.com DNA, it also has changed over the, over the years as their DNA science has changed. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's mainly Nigerian and Mali in terms of the African ancestry. But then I'm like 36% European as well. Hmm. And so my, I know, right? So my mom says, look, you look at our DNA and you see a map of the slave trade. That's wow. what you see. That's wow, what you that's see. Right. Our DNA is a map of the slave trade. So sit in that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sit in that. That's 36% of our DNA was forced into our family line. Uh, how, how do you deal with that? I mean, that's, that's trauma on a multi-generational level. Um, I guess maybe, maybe how do you not hate? Uh, that's probably what I'm trying to ask. Well, I, I'll tell you this. Here's the thing. Hatred does nothing mm. to the person that's being hated. Mm -hmm. Hatred rots one's own soul. Mm. Um, so I don't hate because I love myself. Mm -hmm. um, I choose love because love is more powerful than hate. Love is more powerful than power, even. Mm. And so I... I actually called my auntie at some point in the middle of, of the research and said, how, how do you hold this? Because mm. she's also been doing research for a long time. And she's kind of one of those people um, in the family that kind of holds like the spiritual core of the family. Mm. And, and she said, you have, to, you have to choose to hold on. Because one of the things was realizing that fortune was likely raped and her daughter was likely raped. And the reason how I found that was by doing the DNA matching and finding the indenturing family's surnames hmm. in my matches. Wow. Right. So oh their surnames were right there in my matches. Now, you know, Trace, because it was so far back, we're talking 10 generations ago. But at the same time, it's there. And mm -hmm. there are a lot of other surnames that aren't there. And to know that these probably got into my line because they were forced there. And many mm. other times that, that that happened, you know, I, tr I traced those people back and I'm like, oh my gosh, they traced back. They literally traced back to English royalty. Like they, they traced back to um, wow. somebody who stood with William the Conqueror in mm. 1066, like literally who was one of the generals and, you know, in 1066 with, mm -hmm. well, with William the Conqueror. Right. And so how do I hold that? Yeah. Mm. How do I hold that? That person's DNA is in me, wow. but how do I hold that? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. yeah. So he said, Lisa, you hold it as simple truth. Hmm. This is the truth. Hmm. It's simply the truth. Hmm. Wow. That's it. That's all you can do is simply hold it as the truth and then walk forward. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's such an interesting conversation coming from the complete opposite side. Mm -hmm. um, so pardon my ignorance, but I, 
two Christmases ago, my parents bought me Ancestry.com, two birds, mm. one stone. <laughs> if I mm-hmm. got to trace my DNA, they would both know. Um, and I am like purely from European descent, um, British, German, Scottish, and Irish with some mm-hmm. Welsh in there. Um, mm-hmm. So my heritage is actually one of conquerors, colonizers, dominators. Um, and and there's some there's a sobering reality to this conversation, even going like, wow, I'm on the other side of this conversation. Yeah. How are we meant to have a conversation about that um, as people today? And then how is that meant to impact both of our spirituality? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think that there's there's a few different realities that came out of out of England, right? So your people, you could be English. Or you could have been subjugated by England, right? So True. you could be Scottish um, or Welsh um, or Irish um, and really be a subjugated citizen of Britain. Right? Absolutely. And so, so, and then, or you could be someone else of European descent having come over here. Um, and one of the things that, that makes it um, so difficult for people of European descent to engage in this is because they still hold on to the moniker of whiteness. Mm-hmm. And whiteness has benefited. I mean, that moniker, that 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 construct has benefited people of European descent in that it aggregated everybody and right? mm-hmm. brought everybody together under this one umbrella. People who have been fighting for, for millennia against each other. Now they're all one people. They are white. And they get to dominate because they are white. They're not mm-hmm. disaggregated. They're not... Polish and Irish and Lithuanian, you know, they're just white. So you get to be one dominating force on this land. And so to disaggregate is actually to give up power. Now that Mm -hmm. you just have to understand that you to disaggregate is to give up white power. Hmm. So what it will take is for people of European descent to lay down their arms against Mm -hmm. God, against the image of God on earth. Because I think you've only seen it from the perspective of, you know, we get power this way, we get to be okay this way, but you realize this way is the way of domination. This Mm -hmm. way is the way of blood and rape and tears and wailing and loss Mm -hmm. on the other side of this way for for those who have been dominated. And that is not, it's it's not just those It's images of God Mm. on earth. So the question really stands, do these people of European descent who say they follow Jesus, brown, colonized, serially enslaved Jesus, do they really love God? Mm. Because if they really love God, then they will lay down their arms against Jesus the image of God. Hmm. And what it will look like to do that, what it will require to do that, I believe, is that it will require a a subversion of the white story that is told that Hmm. keeps whiteness in place, right? The story of America was a vast untamed wilderness before we got here. (laughs) And we, we, cut it out on our own and chop down the trees on our own and built this nation and, and, mm. and, you know, without ever any reference to race at all, right. without reference to the fact that, that literally um, within the five, the four first 400 years of 
Europeans being on this land. We went from 100 million indigenous people in all of the Americas, North, South, and Central, to being 100,000. Mm. Yeah, it's and And in that time, four, yes, yes, it is staggering. In that time, four million um, African Americans were were living at least four million living in America at the time, just at the time of the of the Civil War. So four hundred thousand were brought here, but about twelve million Africans were brought into the New World, the quote New World, right. um, from Africa in the course of the transatlantic slave trade. Twelve million uprooted. Wow. Why? For the benefit of white men. Mm-hmm. So. I don't think, I think what, what it will take is the subversion of that meta narrative that kind of whitewashes that history mm-hmm. through family story. Hmm. Wow. Through people of European descent going deep into their own family story, reconnecting with the story of what was happening in their homelands before they came that led their ancestors to come here. Either they were brought here as indentured servants, or they jumped on a boat and tried to escape um, oppression on mm-hmm. European shores, or they were brought here as um, as prisoners in the colony of Georgia, right? So um, prisoners of, of a colonizer, um, Britain. So you have to get in touch with that. And if by chance your DNA does trace back to one of those original ruling families, those those families that were called nobility on English soil that were granted land in the very beginning, um, which is where fortunes indenturers came from. Mm. If by chance your DNA traces back there, then you must reckon with that, Hmm. with the reality that your wealth and position in the world, it comes from coming here, um, and standing on the store on the soil already atop a hierarchy, the, the mm. top of a of a of a scaffolding that was built in Europe, um, the top tier of which was built for you. Mm. Yeah. So there's a reckoning that must happen. Mm. Well, you know, and I and I think in very practical terms, what you just said about a meta narrative is so critical because when I look at the vast majority of white evangelicals, they are they've combined two stories together, and the story of God and the story of America, and it just so happens that their version of the story is, as you said, a very whitewashed version. It's the myth of American exceptionalism that America was this. Um, you know, virgin land where we damn well know it was widowed land because we had killed everybody. And yet, when you mm. when you begin your story as a in your identity with a nation and with some kind of God ordained um, desire to then dominate and control that, it, it's very difficult to go back and actually tell the truth. And and yeah. it feels it feels like that that's what's happening in some of the backlash against CRT critical race theory <laughs> is that we have a we have multi generations of white people that have bought a lie, been told a lie, and don't want to see the truth. Um, yeah, is is that your interpretation of some of the backlash against CRT, and and then what do we do about it? 
Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, in fact, you know, when you when you push forward in the book, um, your the first three chapters are all about the roots of this construct we call race. The next three chapters are about what's what are the fruits of it, the degradation mm. that results of it of it, and also the resistance that we see rising in the next generations. Um, and it is really incredible to see. But again, at every juncture, there were choices that were made, choices that our legislators, that our policymakers, that our church leaders made in order to, to protect their power, in order to protect the supremacy of whiteness on American soil. And I think that the backlash against CRT and you know all the rest of it right now is happening. January 6th happened because we see coming in less than one generation, 23 years, we see coming the day when the majority of people in the United States of America will not be white. Hmm. They will be people of color. Hmm. There will be no one real majority in America. And that's the first time ever um, since Europeans landed. Hmm. And so that inherently will change the power structure in a democracy. Dr. King said in his um, Where Do We Go From Here, the very last book that he wrote, and he wrote it literally the, like months before he was assassinated, he said that the segregationists, and now we would actually say that this is the white, na- white nationalists, would mm-hmm. rather have an American form of fascism than democracy. Absolutely. He yes. said that in 1967. Wow. Mm-hmm. And why did he know that? Because the South had experienced an American form of fascism. Hmm. Isn't it interesting that now, now that basically you have the same people who who were at the forefront of the Jim Crow movement are now the ones who are at the forefront of the Republican Party. <laughs> and now it's national. Jim Crow has gone national. And that party is now choosing an American form of fascism mm-hmm. rather than democracy. Wow. Preach. Yeah, seriously. What's what's so interesting to me is it seems maybe maybe it's not a unique moment in history. Maybe history truly re- repeats itself, but it seems that there are underrepresented people that are gaining more equality in the world. I you could look at mm-hmm. the the role of women, how that's changed. We've made progress. I think there's still a lot of room um, for more equality, but then you also have. Um, maybe this shouldn't come as a surprise, but there's this like incredible backlash on the conservative militants in America, mm-hmm. England, you know, France. Um, what? And then th- there, it's deeply tied to conservative evangelicalism. Where do you think conservative e- evangelicalism has maybe gone wrong or mm-hmm. led white people to play such a central role in in where we are today? That's a really, that's a very, very packed question. And I'm going to take one thread of where it could go. Fantastic. <laughs> when, <laughs> I mean, it really could go lots of different directions. But just to say, first of all, you cannot leave Russia out of that, right? So very Russia true. is actually leading the charge. Um, you know, recent reports have actually said that it is, um, it's been Russia's desire um, to put to push out um, uh, an anti-Semitic and white supremacist um, worldview into the world. And that's what they did with mm-hmm. the um, propping up Trump in the, in the election of 2016 and uh, and the recent one. And so, you know, you're right. This is a global 
issue now. Mm-hmm. Um, how have evangelicals gotten caught up in all of this? I think that evangelicals got caught up in it because, first of all, there is no one evangelical church. We're not mm-hmm. a monolith. We have very we have several streams of the evangelical church, and the streams that have gotten most caught up in it are the same ones that that fought to maintain slavery and fought to maintain Jim Crow. They were at the right. vanguard of those fights. And after, and they used to be Democrats, and after um, the Civil Rights Act was passed and the Voting Rights Act especially was passed, they left the Democratic Party en masse and became Dixiecrats, right? And then they, 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 they joined, eventually joined the Republican Party because Nixon courted them. Mm. Um, Nixon courted them through dog whistles, but Nixon courted them more than anything through the, the war on drugs, right? That war on drugs, which gave him the ability to villainize people of color who these people would, I mean, loved doing because they had spent the whole of the early 20th century doing that, um, trying to maintain white power in the South. So when that, when all these forces joined by eight, by 1980, um, you also had Bob Jones University um, at war with the United States of America, trying to maintain the purity of white space. And when they lost that fight in the Supreme Court, in 1983, it took not that long, just months for them to turn around and say, okay, we can no longer, we can no longer win, um, this, this, this white, um, nationalist, uh, uh, fight without overturning the Supreme Court. We have to overturn the Supreme Court because mm-hmm. it is the Supreme Court that made us lose Bob Jones University. I mean, as as a pure white space, we can no longer do that because of the ruling in Brown versus the Board of Education. Mm-hmm. And Brown versus the Board of Education was the basis for the disability rights movement. Brown versus the Board of Education was the basis uh, for uh, for immigrants' rights. Brown versus Board of Education is the basis for for so many um, uh, uh, pr- uh pushes for equality in America. So they could not win pure white space and white domination because of Brown versus the Board of Education. Mm. So they have to overturn that. How do they overturn that? They overturn that by overturning the calculus of the court. How do they do that? They have to figure out another issue to rally around. Mm. And they chose abortion. Abortion, yeah. Wow. In 1983. And so they chose abortion and they made their number one strategy to, to, to end, um, to overturn that court, to get white power back, um, to get people to think of overturning the court in terms of abortion, because it was no longer ghost to think of it in terms of race, hmm. but it does the same thing. Jeez. So we, we had uh, Kirsten Powers from CNN on the show uh, a few episodes hmm. back, and I asked her, when she looked into her little crystal ball, um, what did she see in the future? And mm. she was bold enough to say potentially uh, another civil war. When when you look at all of the factors and reactions and doubling down that's taking place politically where it, it really does seem um, – and I know I'm incredibly biased because I am not a Republican, but it, it really does seem like there is a party in the United States that is becoming a white nationalist party. Um, yeah. W- when you look at the next 15, 20 years, what do you see, especially as it relates to this whole notion of whiteness and white supremacy and, and racism in America? I see – I see a choice 
that we have right now. Mm. I see the next 10 months and the next two years after that, America has a choice of who it's going to be. Hmm. Um, and I also see that the church really is at the tip of the spear here. The church has the ability to guide the direction of America because 70% of Americans claim to be Christian. So if Christians, just Christians alone in America, made the choice to step down off of the scaffolding of human hierarchy hmm. and to become human, simply humans trying to figure out how to live together in common space and doing that together. Mm -hmm. If we made that choice, we actually could experience the beloved community. We could, and it's hard, and it's going to be um, messy, and it's, mm. it's going to hurt, and it's going to require loss, loss for people of European descent. It's going to require a deep, deep reach of their spirituality, mm. mm -hmm. deep spirituality. But if we don't do that, the other choice is war. There's literally no other way it can go. It, mm. It's going to be war. Now, mm. how that war looks, whether it's you know the kind of war we had in the Civil War, where it's people, you know, one side, the other side, and it's it's um, symmetrical warfare, that's unlikely. In fact, I just read an article this last week that said. Civil war is likely. Um, they would what they say is it's likely. I say it's likely if we don't repent. Mm. Hmm. But that civil war will actually be more like it, like Vietnam. It'll be asymmetrical warfare. It'll be more guerrilla warfare. It'll be terrorists mm -hmm. um, and things like that. But there will be lots of violence, lots of bloodshed, and it will be uncontrollable. Yeah. So we have a choice now. Now. Like as in now, mm -hmm. <laughs> to lay down our arms against the image of God on our land mm. and to simply be human. Mm. Wow. I don't know Except, what to say. This is perfect. Yeah, <laughs> it is perfect. And it, it, I think we really do have a choice. I'm, I'm curious for myself and for our listeners. I mean, you've given us some nuggets um, about uh, diving into your family story and mm -hmm. kind of breaking down the meta narrative. But what would you say would be some really active steps in in being? Because that you know, you have a choice is is a fairly abstract idea. Lots of lots of people don't believe they have a choice. They're like following this invisible path. Hmm. What is it? What are some tangible steps? Choices that, they can make. Yeah. What choices can I make today that mm -hmm. start that process of stepping down? That's good. So one of the choices that you can make is literally to sign up for some kind of genealogy thing and begin to build your, your family tree. Hmm. Like literally. Beautiful. And yeah. and don't don't just ask who came when, ask what was going on in the world at the time that they came and hmm. what made them want to uproot themselves in order to come here. What was happening to them? And you know what? As Europeans, you are very well documented. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So there's, there is literally no excuse for not knowing. None. No excuse hmm. for not knowing. Unless you had individual ancestors that really hid stuff so that because out of shame, they didn't want people to know. Well, then it might be more difficult. Right. But 
it's um, or adoption that also can sometimes make it really hard. Although mm-hmm. even then, DNA can help, right? So mm-hmm. the DNA works. So get your DNA done. If you don't, you know, the thing is, is that become grounded again mm-hmm. in the reality of who you are, not the not this this story that was spun of whiteness. You are not white. Mm-hmm. You are Lithuanian American, Polish American. German American, British American, you are Irish American, mm-hmm. you are Welsh American, you are may not even be American, you might be simply here, right? Not even be a citizen and 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 reading this book and still going, what's my part in this? Well, your part has to go back to the Caribbean and ask the question, how did my home country, what does it have to do with the Caribbean slave trade? You may not have had anything to do here, but your home country had something to do with it in the Caribbean Mm -hmm. and in South America and in Mexico. Hello. Um, And it's not even just the slave trade. What was happening when they got here? How did they fit into the hierarchy of human belonging when they got here? Were they even considered white or did they have to fight to become white? Why did they become white? What were the choices that they made to become white? Did they whiteify their names um, or anglicize their names? Um, did they did they hide their actual identities? Um, what were the choices? Because these are the things that are going to help you to become human again. Mm-hmm. Wow. These are the things that are going to help you to become more grounded and to see Jesus differently, to see brown Absolutely. colonized Jesus, brown colonized Mary, brown colonized um, even David, he wasn't colonized per se, but he was always afraid of being colonized. Absolutely. His people certainly were seri- serially, you know. So, mm. so this is it'll help you to see the the whole scripture differently. Mm-hmm. Um, to to read the scripture not from the halls of empire from that mm. location, but rather to read the scripture from the location of the ones who were crushed. Mm-hmm. I I think that's so critical that Mm -hmm. we have to remove, especially those of us of of European descent. We have to remove that that white gaze, that that imperial hermeneutic, because we do see even we even read scripture through the lens of power and domination Mm -hmm. and empire. And unfortunately, the the scriptures are you know a two thousand year old conversation about God being pretty uh, against empire. Um, yes, you know, we, um, <laughs> we you know when you look at Rome and Babylon and Persia and every one of the uh, imperial forces that show up in our sacred texts, they are constantly against the people of God. And that we white Americans have somehow flipped the script and believe mm. that the American empire is actually God's force in the world. Mm. I, I, I just think you have to deconstruct that um, on a really yeah. basic level before you're even going to see what you can't see and, and, and read what we've just been hidden. We don't want to see, as you said, that the God that we serve was a was a poor brown illegal immigrant and mm-hmm. was colonized and mm-hmm. and if we told the story today uh, Jesus wouldn't be some white dude in you know in in Orange County he's going to be on the front lines of the Black Lives Matter movement because these are his people and I I just don't know how to help the average white 
Christian flip the script and 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 read history, read theology, read scripture itself from the underside, from from the belly, and and I think I think you're helping us do that. But I, that's that's my passion for for where we go forward. We have um, at Freedom Road, we have an institute, and that institute has webinars and growth communities. And last year, we actually two was it two years now in a row, we've done something called How to Decolonize the Bible. Mm. So in 2020, um, we did How to Decolonize the Bible. It was literally one of the highest attended webinars we've done. Like I think more than 100 people took that webinar. And it's myself and um, Reverend Renee August from South Africa, mm. um, who who led, I think, six different sessions um, on how to decolonize. We just literally, you can and you can download it and you can okay. learn how to decolonize the Bible. And then the second was we actually then last year, we, we didn't do how to decolonize, we did decolonizing the Bible. So we actually did a decolonizing Bible study mm. over a series of weeks. And I I think it was eight weeks, an eight-week series. It was powerful. It was amazing. <laughs> so we 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 instituted the hermeneutic that we talked about in the first series, and and it resulted in a decolonizing process of the scripture. And um, so I would highly recommend downloading those two. Just if you just want to start somewhere, start there because it's a really great beginning point. Um, and then look, here's the thing: is that once once you once you understand the truth. The truth of who we, who you really are, um, the truth of how your people really got here, and how they benefited from the constructs of human hierarchy and hi- human hierarchies of belonging that were set up here to benefit people of European descent, your men of in particular. Mm-hmm. Once you understand that, then the question is, how do I? How do we make things right? And the first thing we need to do is we need to go to those who were the impacted ones and ask them. What do you say mm. we need to do in order mm. for things to be made well with you? That's what David did when mm. the Gibeonites came mm. to him and said, yo, Mr. David, you know, um, Saul, the king before you, by the way, it wasn't even on, on David's watch. It was the king before him who tried to commit suicide, um, suicide sorry, genocide um, against the Gibeonites. And David was like, why is there a drought in the land, God? Why is there a drought in the land? And the Gibeonites <laughs> come knocking and they tell him, this is why. And he goes, oh, that's why. So he could have done several things there. He could have done what America has done to people of African descent. He could have said, I'm sorry. so sorry for you. Yeah. And just sent them away. Right. Bye. Right. Um, peace. And then just in a way, that's exactly what we've done. People of African descent in America are the only people who have been subjugated on this land who have never had re- reparations for mm. the um, subjugation here. Um, he could have done something, you know, marginally better. He could have said, you know, uh, we're so sorry about this. We're going to get a council together and we'll decide, you know, how we make this right. You see how that process is actually disempowering. Mm. That process is a process that does not um, recognize the image of God um, in in the Gibeonites because it it takes away their capacity to exercise dominion even over their own um, healing, their own repair. Mm. But what he did, he did the third thing. He did the good thing. He said, what do you say? And in doing that, he recognized the image of God in them. He bowed to the image of God. Wow. He gave he gave them the ability to do what humans do, which is to exercise agency, hmm. to steward their lives and even this moment. 
And then they told him they had already had their counsel. They came prepared. And he did it without one question. In in Australia, the legislature went to the nations, the the um, indigenous nations there, and said, "Tell us what it will take for us to for for you to be made well." So they held a council on Uluru. This is the the mountain that that sits at the very center, the very core of Australia. And they came back. They came back to the legislature in Australia and said, "This is what it will take." Hmm. And the legislature said. Oh, it's too much. Never mind. Yeah, we we don't want to do all that. Yeah. Hmm. But that is what it will take. Mm -hmm. Wow. So the question really is, for us now in America, as we have avoided, we've avoided that moment for 500 years, 400 years with people of African descent, 500 years with indigenous people. We have avoided this question. Avoided that moment. And the avoidance of it is what has gotten us January 6th. Mm-hmm. And what has gotten us possible civil war and losing our democracy altogether. Yeah. Within the next few years. So we really are at a crossroads. And I have hope because I know that we are all still human. Mm-hmm. And humans have the ability to choose the right, the good, the just way. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah, this has been incredible. And I, I think we could go on for another hour, but you probably have things to do. Um, <laughs> could we <laughs> Could we end with, because uh, this has been a very weighty conversation, a, a convicting conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and I think anytime I any one of, of European descent speaks to someone who we have subjugated, um, I think there's a tendency to want to say, well, just tell us how to fix it, right? Like you, mm-hmm. you, we, we did you harm, so can you help us? And, and I hope that that's not what we did um, today because no. that's, that's not the posture. I mean, we, we have to do our own work um, as – But as, you need guidance. Exactly. I mean, look, exactly. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to trust you. Just like I just said, I'm not going to say, okay, people who have been subjugating us for 500 years, go figure it out. Right, figure when it I out. I don't have time. I don't have time for you to figure it out. I'm happy to tell you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and by the way, there have been many, many, many people, um, um, organizations within the African-American community um, and other communities that have been saying this is how things may be made well. Mm. Um, in, in the chapter on reparations in my book, I actually – I. Um, survey three of those manifestos. The first is the Black Manifesto um, written in the 1970s. Basically says, this is how things can be made well with us. Hmm. Um, The Movement for Black Lives has an incredible vision that really mirrors the beloved community, mirrors the kingdom of God. Um, And then you have legislation that's coming down the pike. HR 40 and the TRHT Commission, the Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Commission, put forward by Barbara Lee last year. Um, these are two um, pieces of legislation that could get us a truth-telling process in the United States mm. and reparations, or a study to study what reparations would require. So it's not like these, it's not possible. We just have to make now, we, the voters have to make the choices with our votes mm. about what is the future we want in America. Love it. 
Can we Seriously. end by asking you some fun, just sort of rapid fire questions? <laughs> sure, that, that's no would problem. Would that be all right? Yes, all right. yes, yes. Okay, the first question is, what was your first job? <laughs> okay, so my very first job, besides, you know, a lemonade stand when I was about seven, <laughs> um, my first paid job that I had to get a work permit for was a bus girl. I was a bus girl at La Toque Restaurant in Cape May, New Jersey, um, right on the on the square there on the, the Cape May Mall. And it was awesome. You know, I worked for this woman who had formerly worked for my dad and she opened up a restaurant. It was a, you know, so that was my first. And then I was, after that, I think I was, I was a bus girl for a lot of years. And then for one day I was, or one week I was a waitress, but Kate May didn't like black waitresses. And mm. so I got stiffed a lot. So I decided to go back and to being a bus person um, and, and working behind the ice cream counter. <laughs> wow. Can you believe that? I love it. <gasps> yeah. So who who was your hero either growing up and or a, a hero today? I think that my um, strongest hero growing up was Harriet Tubman because I watched um, I watched a woman called Moses. I watched Cicely Tyson. Um, she was probably my my biggest hero in terms of uh, African American actresses. Um, but I watched her pull a cart made for mules in a woman called Moses, um, because that's something that, that Harriet Tubman's master made her do, um, as part of a mule parade, in other words, um, with all of his friends cheering Harriet on, um, and her in her tattered rags. Um, and that, that moment just never left me. So Hmm. I, Harriet Tubman was my hero growing up and Cecily Tyson was my hero because she made her come to life. Wow. I love that. Our next question is, what story do you tell most often? What story do I tell most often? That's an interesting question. Um, I am, um, I think I tell the story of Jesus most often, brown Hmm. Jesus. Most Hmm. often I tell the story of brown colonized Jesus who comes from serially enslaved people, who was the king of the kingdom of God come to confront the kingdoms of men hell bent on crushing the image of God on earth. I love that. That will preach. That, there, there's a book. Um, you've yeah. probably, probably written it. <laughs> it's called The Very Good Gospel. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> Can't wait to read that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Just just two more questions and we'll, we'll let you go. Um, mm-hmm. What are you most looking forward to in the coming year? The, oh, my goodness. I'm most looking forward to the launch of my book. Yes. Oh, I'm so excited. So I can barely contain it. I'm so excited. Um, look, 30 years of research, right? Four mm. years of writing. Two years on the two years of those four were just on the proposal alone. And then two more years to write. I mean, I've never taken two years to write a book before. Usually I can write a book in a month. So two years to write this book, it's just, it's been sitting in me. It's been Welling, wow. the stories are a part of me now. They really are, and but now it's been a really amazing experience to watch people reading it, interacting with it, and talking about how it's transforming them, and how it's transforming their understanding of America and who we are and how we got here, mm-hmm. and what we need to do to be made well again. So as I see, I'm looking forward to people reading it and then taking action. Um, the transformation of readers that will happen as a result of it. Wow. Can't can't wait to hear how that goes. Thank you. Our last question for you is what song or artist do you consistently listen to or what is your theme song? 
Oh, wow. (laughs) You know, I was asked over Christmas break, my nephew asked me, what's your favorite song? And without dropping a beat, um, you know, missing a beat, I I said Freedom by Beyonce. Mm. I love it. Like that song, that song is my anthem. That's fantastic. I love that so much. Yes. That's great. Uh, Your book, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It is out February 8th. Um, Where can we find that and and find out more information about you and your ongoing work for racial reconciliation and justice? You can find um, Fortune wherever books are sold and you can have easy access to your favorite bookseller at fortunebook.us fortunebook.us. And you can also follow along throughout the month of February. We're declaring it Black Fortune Month. Um, So we'll have people reading the book and downloading the downloadable study guide, as well as um, uh, checking in on events throughout the month. And at the end of the month, we're actually going to have an advocacy push as well. I'm calling America to truth telling and repair. Mm. Thank you, Lisa. This has been an incredible conversation. It's been humbling and mm-hmm. convicting on so many different levels. So we're, we're just really honored to have you uh, here and, and share this space with you. And, and I can't wait to, to read your book and continue to follow you and, and be inspired by you as we, as we all join hands and recognize the dignity and the humanity of everyone. So thank you so much for mm-hmm. being here. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. God bless you. You as well. Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society and written by Kelly Lamb and Gary Allen Taylor. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. If you want more resources to help your spiritual formation and your reconstruction journey, head to sophiasociety.org for articles, online courses, our free ebook, and don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. See you next time.